Welcome to the Waymaker Fireside Chat Podcast, where our purpose is to grow your life and change the world. In this episode, we're sitting down with twin sisters and medical doctors, Brittany James and Brandy Jackson, to discuss racism in the medical industry. Lewis Carr is the founder of Waymaker, the Lewis Carr Internship Foundation, the Blueprint Men's Summit, president of media sales at BET Networks, and author of Dirty Little Secrets. Today, Drs. Brittany James and Brandy Jackson, who are also the co-founders of the Institute of Anti-Racism in Medicine, will reveal their personal passions and methods for serving their communities and combating racism in medicine. They'll also equip listeners with advice pertaining to their own health and well-being and discuss the COVID-19 vaccine. Let's get started. Good morning, Waymaker audience. I'm Lewis Carr, the founder of Waymaker. And welcome to the Waymaker Fireside Chat. And we have the pleasure this morning of talking to Dr. Brittany James and Dr. Brandy Jackson. Welcome to the Waymaker Fireside Chat, ladies. Thank you Thank so you much. Yeah, it's it, excited to be it's, here. It's a great pleasure to uh, talk to you this morning, especially since we all are in Chicago today. Hey, there's nowhere else to be. Nicely, <laughs> place to be and be seen. And the, the first Monday after the official national holiday of Juneteenth. So mm-hmm. we all are excited and glad to be here today. So first of all, I want to start by asking, why did you both go into medicine? And maybe I'm going to tell the audience that you're twins. Okay. So that's <laughs> special in itself. So why did you both go into medicine? I feel like I should tell this story because ultimately my sister copied me like she does with most things in our life. (laughs) (laughs) I am the older sister, so it's natural. But (laughs) I'll get ready for this all all hour. But no, um, originally, you know, we didn't come from a family of doctors. A lot of our colleagues come from generations of doctors. A lot of them are overwhelmingly from rich families. That is, you know, that's a story. That is not our story. So Uh, It was just one of those things we discovered as we got older. So we've always had a love for science and a curiosity. I would actually just call it a curiosity about the world. When we were young, we used to do experiments all the time in our house. Uh, man, Brand, what setting off the we set off rockets in the bathroom, oh. like you know, at our mom's house. What were we doing? Oh gosh, we would have fire in our hospitals where literally bugs would die because we were thinking we were saving them and putting them in our mother's jewelry containers as hospital rooms. I mean, from a young age, it was just really there. But I think the really, I think the remarkable thing though is, given all of that curiosity, it really took until college before it really crystallized into not just deciding to be doctors, but actually the step before that, deciding that we could be doctors, that it was actually a possibility. And this is even given the fact that we were overachievers academically from always, always. We both graduated, we were second in our high school class with above 4.0. We had the same GPA to like three decimal places. And still then there was really no one saying, hey, you should look into an elite college. You should look into some of these professions like medicine, law. We just didn't get that guidance. And I look back on our education and I think, wow, I got to become and explore my intelligence, but 
there was no one pointing it anywhere. And even to explore the intelligence, I think, is more than most Black kids get in this country. But we were lucky enough to have parents who told us we could do anything we wanted, even if they didn't know the way. And I don't know, for me, the turning point was, well, Brittany, I don't, it was actually seeing oh, yeah. in the flesh. Yeah, I, I literally mean, I was the first, literally as an older twin now. But when I was 21, I was doing, you know, we had done, I had done a bunch of different random jobs trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life, working in a lab, did some tutoring, um, all these things, consider Teach for America. But it was when I had the privilege of traveling to South Africa to study abroad, um, that helped. But, but even more than that was coming back home and then comparing, I, I did a rotation in New York City at New York Presbyterian Hospital, that's Cornell's medical, uh, that's Cornell's hospital. And um, to see the resources that was in downtown New York City compared to what was going on in South Africa. And, but also about that time, that was the first time I saw a black woman doctor in the flesh. I was about 21 at that point. And before that, all I had was Bailey from Grey's Anatomy. Uh, true story. Uh, so we, we talk about this a lot, but you really, I, you can't be what you can't see. And I think seeing her, and I will never forget it, she had long dreadlocks. It was a beautiful black woman. And I said, oh my gosh, this is really something I can do. Um, and it just really became real. And then sharing that with Brandy and just like, literally that just changed my whole world. It changed our whole world. And um, it just mean, meant so much. So if you hadn't decided to be doctors, what path were you guys on? I mean, wh wh where did, what did you think you were gonna do? Well, for the longest, I really thought I would just be a bad, quote, bad scientist. I thought that I could just run, <laughs> I don't know what these experiments were gonna be, but in my mind, I just, I think we both understood at a young age that we were smart and that for some reason that was surprising to people. Of course, later we learned it because we're two black girls, but I just knew I wanted to use my intelligence. If I was smart, I want to use it for something that's gonna actually help people and serve humanity. I knew that part, but the execution was a little fuzzy, okay? <laughs> the execution was gonna be, it wasn't clear. And I, I don't know, what about you, Brittany? Um, first of all, I was just going to call you out on this, this, this story that I always tell. I you're gonna do we that. really do mean our parents encourage us to be anything we wanted. I will say to, the answer to your question is I thought I really want to be a teacher, um, so an English teacher or a science teacher. Um, I, I, it's, it's interesting because I teach today in my current roles, but I will just tell this side story about my sister to embarrass her. Our parents always said we could be whatever we wanted and literally... Uh, my sister said I want to be a bluebird and they didn't want to tell her she couldn't do it so for many years she was going around saying I want to be a bluebird when I grow up that's my sister I was I'm just, yeah I was am, am I lying or is it true brand no, okay, I, I believe that I would because we were studying metamorphosis I thought I could literally change into something that's the power of parents who just relentlessly will not say you can't do it and that's probably the real reason we're doctors at this point and when you decided that, did you also make the decision that you wanted to serve people who kind of look like you? It wasn't two separate decisions. And this is why people, um, it's really interesting. It was just kind of like that, of course. It was just a, of course. And I think the other thing to, for us, it's, it's not just those people <laughs> over there for a lot of our colleagues, it, like, you know, for us, that's our cousin, that's our family member that, you know, that, that feels like home to us. So it really, um, you know, we didn't come from money like that. 
And, um, you know, obviously being black and brown in this country does something to your health, honestly. And so it was just really a returning home. It was just a, always, it was, a, it was almost, a, it was just more so a North star. Like I'm doing this because our community, um, we need this. Not all of us can have the privileges to line up to be able to get to this space. There's a lot of people who are brilliant enough to do it. Don't definitely don't get me wrong there, but there's just something that is so, they go hand in hand. I, I agree. And I think now that I have the privilege of mentoring um, folks who are coming up in the medical um, training system, I think there's so many periods of darkness and that we, we try to talk about the periods of darkness over this, what, 15 year, 20 year journey towards sitting where we sit as attendings, um, which is just the name for the most senior doctor that you finished all your training. Um, there is, I don't know how people especially black people survive it without a North star, like wanting to serve our own community. There is absolutely mentally, there are times that your soul is stripped out. You have your worth doesn't come from this. In fact, it's a, it's a exercise in just, just gut strength um, to face what, what you have to face to become a doctor in this country. If you're black, because you're not only seeing the racism done to your people, you're having it done to you at the same time, you need something from this profession, which is that piece of paper. So it, our entire purpose is to increase and improve the health of our community. Um, it can't, like Brittany said, it really can't be separated from the journey. And it's the only thing that made meaning of the extreme pain of this path. So, so you both are here in Chicago. Tell our listening audience about the communities you serve. Yeah, so uh, I'm a family doc. Um, so I see patients cradle to grave, as we say. So I have patients a couple of days old all the way up to the other end of the spectrum, 90s. Um, so it's a pleasure, but I practice on the South side. Uh, I've been practicing in South, South Shore in particular uh, for some time uh, down on 70th and Stony. if you're local come see me, hey. Um, and uh, also, uh, I've also been, uh, spent some time doing work in Cicero um, and spent some time in the West Side as well. Dr. Jackson. Cool, and yeah, I am a psychiatrist, so I'm a doctor of the mind. And um, I practice, right now I've, I am actually 100% healthcare administration. So I started out seeing patients in Inglewood 55th and Halstead, shout out, uh, to, and loved it. I worked, I loved it, loved it. And when the pandemic hit, um, I watched that community get ravaged and forgotten. And there, were mo there was a moment when I realized that as long as I'm seeing patients one-to-one, -one, you know, I'm trading time for one person, which was, it, it's such a valuable thing. I felt though this pull to, to, go into the belly of the beast. So now um, I actually work at High Ground Health, which is a federally qualified health center here in Chicago. We operate, I, I want to say, oh, forgive me. I want to say 12 sites now. We were growing so fast. Um, and I am in the chief behavioral health officer. So I lead both the behavioral health and the social services division there. And we see patients regardless of ability to pay. That is one thing I do not play with. So all of our patients, whether you're documented, undocumented, whether you have money, doesn't matter, you can come and get care. And the other piece of it is our focus is the LGBTQ community. So that's our base. 
and then, but we are very much a community system. So anybody can walk through the doors and get care. So that's, it's been a fun challenge. So how has COVID-19 impacted your practice, your patients and the communities you serve? Man, it's been heavy. Uh, I'll, it's been heavy. Uh, so I've been in fairly qualified health centers since I became a doctor. So for about, man, six or seven years now. Uh, I've only, and for people who don't know, those are clinics where safety net clinics. So they will disproportionately Medicare, Medicaid, you know, people without resources. So I get, I, you know, I, I had to put it in context that before the pandemic, we were limping along, right? Like we were, we were already under-resourced. We already had to deal with insurance companies not approving the same drugs that I could get approved if I went to the main hospital or if you had the right, you know, a different insurance. Um, already dealing with, you know, people who who don't have stable jobs or stable housing, homeless. I, I take care of a lot of people who were formerly incarcerated and now coming out and trying to get your life back after something like that. And that was before the pandemic. So I always put that context in because headed in, we weren't, we weren't strong. And when the pandemic came, the floor fell out. I, I just have no other way to say it. Um, it was, you know, I don't know if people remember in the beginning, we weren't even tracking, you know, the numbers in black and brown communities. We had to advocate to even get it measured. And so I think that, that we're still seeing that today. Um, which I'm sure we'll get into more, but essentially it, it was devastating. I, it was this, it was the experience I described as like just kind of being in this ivory tower of yes, I'm protected because I'm in a white coat, I have an MD, but in so many ways, um, it was just vicarious trauma because I would have, you know, again, South Shore, we were one of the hardest hit in the in the city um, in that zip code, and just seeing people over time, over the months, I'm seeing them now. You lost your job. Every week, a family member, my mom died, my brother died, my sister died, my cousin died, my friend. And it's just, it was back to back to back, where just literally all of my patients were touched by COVID. And, and then on top of that, uh, and I know we'll get into this, um, you know, a lot of people, that does a lot when you're losing your house, you're losing your livelihood, you're afraid for your actual life. And then for us, that mental health piece, not having access to therapists, not having access to mental health care, um, really affected my patients. And uh, also, I, I'm uh, the biggest force on our, on our mental health racism, which our field of medicine is just completely unequipped to deal with. And then they didn't have vaccines nearby. And the, it's just, and they couldn't get testing. It was just, uh, uh, it's been horrible. <laughs> it's been very hard. Um, but I think that if people think that this is a pandemic thing, uh, they're missing the boat. This was the floor falling out on an already broken system. And Dr. Yes. Jackson, Dr. James mentioned mental health uh, in our communities. Why has this been such a subject that we have not wanted to talk about, we've not wanted to embrace, we've not even wanted to deal with? I think there's a, there's a lot of reasons. I think within the Black community, sometimes there's this thing we call learned helplessness. You just learn that you're going to keep banging your head against the wall, keep speaking truth, and nothing's going to happen. And I, I fear for us that many of us have hit that wall. Um, you know, it took real-time video for us to be believed about being murdered in the streets. 
all these decades, all the fire hoses. I remember, I remember thinking of the fire hoses, thinking of the dogs and the videos that I saw growing up. And I, and it still took a video. I mean, we are living through a mass trauma. We are being re-traumatized on TV. If I, I, sometimes I say, if I could write a book on how to break a human psyche, I would write the story of American slavery and reconstruction and racism. I would write the story that's still being written today. It, it's a masterclass in breaking minds. And so if that's the base, I think so much energy and effort goes into, <clears throat> into getting that out there and helping people outside of our community understand it, but not just understand it intellectually, but to humanize it. Um, I was asked to comment on a story recently about suicides among black folks in our country. And I was asked, why do you think this is happening? Because it was, there's a huge spike in, in black suicides now. And that's far and above a, a, what we see in other races. And why now? Because actually historically, um, you know, black people's suicide rates were a bit lower. My answer, and no one knows for sure yet, but my answer is this is what happens. People have a breaking point too. Black people have a breaking point. And I, I nightly worry that we have crossed ours and I constantly think of what it's going to take for us to reclaim some semblance of peace again for ourselves. The last thing I'll say is I, I well, I'll say a lot of things because I love to talk, but I will also say that I think what's morbid about this moment, some of the things are morbid, one of the things that's morbid about this moment is we often thought of poor black people, people without means as the ones who are just, quote, just the victims of racism. Now I have seen in my own life, in my own circle, black folks who are quite privileged, who are still also still struggling with the just the weight of racism. And so there's this understanding that there is no real escape coming from the outside unless we act and all of us are affected by it. So you guys co-founded the Institute of Anti-Racism in Medicine. Tell us about that. Yeah, this was really, um, I, I kind of joke that we just snapped really, <laughs> for all the reasons I told you. Uh, you know, actually a couple years ago, um, around 2018, my Brandy and I had started a pipeline program called Med Like Me, um, and it, it did well. Uh, we answered, you know, we ran that for a couple years. And so this wasn't our first time into this sort of space. But what changed in 2020 is that we pivoted from saying, Black folks do this to get into medicine to saying the system is busted. How do we change the system? And so we fundamentally fundamentally shifted our gaze to the very um, industry that we feel like is literally killing us. It, and, not, and I don't mean, and I, and I don't mean in a metaphorical sense. I mean, literally um, through lack of access, through um, people who don't understand our community, who are giving subpar care to folks based on the color skin. And basically you can also trace the segregation of the healthcare system, which still exists today. I hope that the pandemic has really shown that. You can trace that straight from the 60s, which you can trace that back to Jim Crow, which you can trace to slavery. And so our, what we're saying is we're not gonna be able to find health and well-being in, in society until we heal racial trauma in ourselves and in our country. Um, and so, you know, two doctors, what do we know about racism? I know that it affects our health. 
And I also know that uh, telling black people to eat healthy when they don't have access to good food, when they can't get good housing because they've been redlined into concentrated areas of poverty, well, we have to come out of our exam rooms to say what's going on here. And so the Institute for Anti-Racism is about creating that new world that doesn't exist. Um, uh, 2% of, two or 3% of doctors are black women. Uh, we're talking like single digits of black providers. Um, but we know, and our, certainly our patients in the community knows, we're not serving, um, we're not doing everything we can and should be to improve black health. So that's why we're here, advocate, advocacy, education. And we wanna give black people the tools to reclaim their health. And big part of that mental health. And um, we have to understand what racism does to our minds and our bodies. We have to. Yeah. Can I give that elevator speech now? Because this Brittany does this to me. Because like in my in my world, like can I just give an elevator speech? Can yeah. I give it? We're so I'm, I'm yes. <laughs> go in the business. The go elevator. go ahead. That was the extended play. Now let me give you the elevator <laughs> speech. <laughs> the Institute for Anti-Racism in Medicine is first and foremost a civil rights organization, and we speak the truth about racism in our profession. And then we have an advocacy arm, but we also have a very building and robust education arm because we understand that if medicine had the answers, they probably would have already done it. So even when it comes to medical education, we're going for a complete overhaul. Um, we're creating a curriculum from scratch that actually tells the true history of our profession and, and names the ways in which we are actively propagating racist harm as supposed healers. So, and I think we are healers, and I think it's really hard for people to come to terms with the fact that we are also bringers of harm. So a lot of our education to other doctors is about that. And then separately, but more importantly, we aim to speak to our community about the, the long journey towards healing and trying to lay the pathway for that so that everybody, and democratize it. So we're working on some content that's going to come out. It, our entire, it's free. Our entire purpose is to teach you how to regain your own health as a black person in this country. So we're really excited to do that. It's an honor to do that and to have the knowledge to do that. So it sounds like the Institute is sort of this two-way street that sort of educates the, the medical profession, but also educates the community on how to sort of live better and, and really focus on uh, the necessities of your health. You got it. That's, that's great. So uh, let's talk about the issues that are facing women today, the health issues that are facing women. What are sort of the, the top three health issues that women are facing and should be aware of and should be more educated about? Mm. Brittany, we no, had a conversation just we did. We talk every morning about this I know. stuff. What, I think we, we were talking this morning, I think, Black women, especially in this pandemic, are we're seeing what happens when you expect the world of to be carried without the support infrastructure. So for me, number one is mental health for Black women and speaking on that and allowing room for Black women to share the vulnerable places um, that many of us feel like we cannot because we're holding up the world. So I think Mental health, number one, number one. I would say number one, two, or three, but I'm sure <laughs> it, it touches them all. But you know, I gotta go with, of course, maternal mortality. Oh my gosh, we're at rates three times that of white women in this country. We are just um, 
you know, and even myself, uh, I'm a full doctor, obviously, I have delivered over 50 babies, I have a a two year old now she's two now, but at the time, you know, I was in the delivery room, and I did not have my pain believed, I ended up having preeclampsia. And there's something about literally reading your own vital. like I had this experience of reading my own vitals, literally, um, you can interpret all those things. And you know, you had, you know, been in school for 11 years, and still was not believed by the, the care team that was taking care of me, I ended up also having a natural birth, I told them not planned, and there's nothing wrong with natural birth, I was not in the mind. So Dr. James, they didn't believe you when you said you were they in pain? They did not believe me. I, yes, <laughs> I told them that epidural that didn't work. I, I, was, uh, I got the epidural. I told them immediately it wasn't right. Um, one side of my body didn't go out. I told them that. I said, well, lay on that side. I'm like, this is... Mm. And um, sure enough, as it went on, the pain increased. The whole thing wore off. And then I was too close to the delivery to get it redone. Hence, I had a natural delivery. So if I cannot in that space protect my body, what it, with a full, full MD um, and, and understanding, delivering of myself and understanding, but you're in such a vulnerable place when you're pregnant and delivering. Um, and then to, we're so exposed as black women during that time and just to not be believed uh, on top of that. So I, that has to be number two. Um, number three, man. Man, I would actually, we were, we were to the bottom. so many, it's a race to the bottom. Actually, I would even, uh, just honestly, any, I hate to say it, any kind of women's health, any kind of like body, anything involving, um, we know that cervical cancer rates, past me or going to the gynecologist so many times when it comes to our bodies first of all as women women are not believed about their bodies to then be a black woman on top of it I mean you really have to prove a lot of times you're called to prove your illness or you're not believed or something you know something isn't right um, a lot of times with our reproduction um, and then it just you know you're not taking seriously so I would have to just say um, childbirth, but then uh, number three, hey, right after that, you know, it's just anything involving reproductive health. Um, we're just, you know, we're not, we're not treated, treated fairly. So the, the, the top uh, topic of today is vaccines. What needs to be done for communities of color to become more comfortable with the COVID vaccine, what needs to be done? Because this was deep to me. This is a deep one. If I'm talking to my peers in medicine, I would tell them, y'all need to go back in time. That's pretty much your only hope because you began to harm the black community in ways that cannot be erased or forgotten a long time ago. So it is disingenuous as many in my profession have been doing to say, well, you know, they just don't want it. They, we tried, we tried. Okay, but tell the whole story. Tell the first part of the story, which is why you have no trust. So I think that's my, my answer to my own community is look at your soul and figure out how you're going to start making good to this community so they actually believe a word out of your mouth. That's number one. But when I talk to, to, to the Black community, when I talk to our people, I think the answer is within ourselves. So I think the answer is to say, what is the evidence? Who are the people in this field of medicine that we can trust, that I do trust? Is it a doctor that actually treated me well? Is it a colleague? Is it watching Dr. James, Dr. Jackson on TV, who we want you to be healthy? You know, 
what are those sources that I do trust? Is it a, is it a pastor? Who are the, the sources that I trust? And let me hear them out. Let me seek people who are meaning to make sure I understand. And that's how you know if someone's genuine. Are they telling you to do something alone or are they explaining to you the why and answering your questions and sitting with you? So find those places. I think it's super important. And I also think ultimately, as always, we can count on each other to save each other and our community to come through and lift each other up. And, and there's so many coalitions and sort of like grassroots organizations and churches that are showing up to support our us in understanding the vaccine and, and ultimately gaining access to the vaccine. And yes, and I will, quick thoughts. Uh, we often ask people, um, you know, why don't you trust the vaccine? I wanna know what has medicine done to be trustworthy? That's the, so I always flip it right, right back. It's not on us. You guys are not trustworthy. So the, the health medicine needs to ask how they're gonna become that. And I think the other thing is, uh, you know, again, 100% of my patients are black. I've had these vaccine conversations till I'm blue in the face. I have heard everything. I've heard 5G. I've heard literally whatever. I Trust me, y'all. I've heard it. I've heard it from y'all. <laughs> and, and my answer is always the same. I want, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. I hear the nerves. First of all, I don't have... I don't need you. I need you to decide what's best for you in your life. That's the first first thing. And and I and my whole goal of existing as a doctor, I feel is just to give you the information that you need to make the best decision for your family. And what's really interesting about the narrative about black people not wanting wanting this vaccine, yes, it's I think there's some hesitance. One, it's a founded uh, nervousness. Two, every time I've talked to black folks and just sat with them and had a 30 minutes, an hour, and just had them get all their questions out, a lot of folks start flipping. It's not that big Herculean task that they make it think, make you think. And that tells me that nobody's talking to Black folks the way they need to. You're talking right. at Black folks, right. but you're not actually listening to what right. they're asking and giving them a straightforward question. You're close. So let's, let's, how do we, I think that's a big part of it, finding a way to get your question answered. And guess what? If you go to the doctor and he just says, take it, and he's not or she's not there for your question, find another doctor. I know that's easier said than done for a lot of us, but I'm very serious. That is not somebody that, you know, you should be letting be a steward of your health because we owe you that. Um, and, and I think that is now my real talk answer to folks because I have a lot of black folks that say, just give it to me straight down. What? What what they doing to this? What what they put it? And I say, listen, now listen. One thing that I had the privilege of doing, and we have the privilege of doing, is having gone through medical school. They 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 put it in another language that you can't understand a lot of these studies. I read the studies, and truly, truly, if this is what I would really say for the folks who just what is straight, no chaser. <laughs> this is what I would say to you. Um, the reality is the way this pandemic is going, and we are in a pandemic every hundred years. This isn't a small. Obviously, this is a big thing. Um, it really, it's gonna come, it, there's only so many ways it can end. I'm just gonna be very straight. Um, and I think what bothers me is that the country is open to everything up because white folks got vaccinated, but our community is still lagging. And the reality is if you're not vaccinated, you are still just as vulnerable. Um, there was a, actually, uh, or it was, I believe it's the Washington Post and where it's looking like the rates of COVID and people who are not vaccinated is still, up there. And so we're creating two Americas, vaccinated America and not vaccinated America. And because vaccinated America is mostly white, they're open up the country. So I only, I worry that things are just going to get worse. But you know, you're either going to catch it and recover. Yes, let's hope. Um, eventually, 
I think over time it will get weaker because that's what viruses does. But um, I think, uh, yes, you may avoid it for the rest of your life, but I'm just worried because everything's opening up. So I just encourage people to just really understand your unique situation. Can you socially distance? Can you reliably? We're disproportionately essential workers. Um, can you do that? Can you maintain that for as long as it needs to be maintained to stay safe? I hear you. But um, the other thing is the vaccine, from what we can see, nothing. And, and this is the black folks you guys love. We love it. You want an exact answer. I can't tell you that there's not going to be anything ever wrong with these vaccines. I can't do that. But what I can tell you is based on what I have seen and what we know so far, it is a better bet to go with that. And it's overly overwhelmingly safe than it is to trust me risking COVID. Because the other thing I really, if, if nothing else, I want my people to understand, it's not just about dying from COVID, okay? Because you can get it and survive. There's an entity called long COVID that we're calling it, and which we're seeing, we're starting to just understand it more. We see that it changes your brain chemistry, your lungs, your heart. It has long-term effects in your body, even after you recover. Folks, we have people who are having memory issues and all these things. And I don't, again, my goal is not to scare you. My, my goal is to give you the straight talk, no chaser, so you can make the best decision. But just understand that this is only you can make. And I just encourage you to weigh who's around you. Do you have elderly people, children, your own health? Um, you know, the fact that the country's opening up, maybe, you know, wherever you work. And there's a lot to weigh, but number one, get it from your doctor. <laughs> get No, not number one, get it from your doctor. Get it from somebody you trust who, who can know what they're talking about and is willing to answer all of your questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. Let's talk about health education in our school system. Does that exist today? And how crucial is it to exist? In any education system, I always start by asking who's writing the books, who's writing the curriculum, and to what ends. I think this country's education system has proven that it will take the path of selective history, <clears throat> selective uplift of some minds and over others. And I think across the board, the mental health education in this country, now I'm talking about everybody in America, we should be pretty upset because there's some really low hanging fruit ways of understanding your own mind and how it works and how to bring peace to it that is very much protected. So I think we're starting from near nil other than some more elite schools that may have gone out and found someone to come in and talk about mental health. So we're starting from nil. And it's, it's a true disservice, especially uh, to Black Americans and, and Black people, um, because we have the most that we're up against in a lot of ways. We have a lot, I won't say the most because I don't like to compare, but I'll say we have a lot mentally that we're up against. So I think we need to start from scratch, down to the young ones, um, helping them understand things like the word boundary. What is a boundary? What is yours, yours to have, whether it's physical first, of course, but then also mental. What space do you allow other people to occupy in your own mind? Um, beginning to look at things like the, everyone's favorite word, self-care. But I can tell you, I got to the age, I'm 33, I got to this age and I'm, and I'm a psychiatrist. So I study self-care and I'm still learning the execution of joy in my own life, how to curate peace in my own life. So I think about how much 
morbidity, how much hurt, sadness, loneliness could be prevented if we had the basic tools of mental health taught at a young age. I, I, I actually, I really applaud you for bringing it up because I don't hear enough talked about mental health in schools, how it could really save our children and ultimately us as adults. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And um, also just, man, just to me, nutrition education, huge, huge, because even in med medical school, most medical schools, you get what, under three, four hours in four years about, we're talking hours, a couple hours about nutrition, which is just the bedrock of health. It just is. And, you know, if we could teach people about, you know, how to actually, you know, cook food and what does it mean to like heal your body with food and how does that look? Um, that's huge. And just uh, also just the way we teach women, of course, about their bodies. I think that that's important, understanding self-esteem and, and just, um, and even uh, I say hypertension, people don't know what that means. You have to say high blood pressure, even though it's something that um, affects so many you know, people of color, diabetes, high blood pressure. And I'm all often having to explain, this is what this means. Like, this is what diabetes means after you have it. And so that just tells me, you know, we're not doing a good job of making sure people understand the basic, uh, you know, what you're trying to avoid and just the basics about their body and their health. So much it's needed. Can I say one thing of my spirit that's been of my spirit for our people too on this topic, which is I see so many people coming in in my own practice Brittany, I know you too, where they really are making true efforts to be healthy in the ways that they understand health. It breaks my heart when I see people, they put earnest effort. And because they've had misinformation, that effort is not paying off the way they want. Um, you know, switching to, making switches that, oh, actually that thing is, they didn't tell you that's still full of sugar, you know, and, and people are earnestly trying. So I know part of our platform is to offer people the real kind of the places where it really makes the biggest impact to meet them where they are. Cause I really believe black people want to be well. It's another thing that are, you know, we want to be well. So what is the role of some of these pharmaceutical companies in uh, uh, this whole environment? So we know the government has a role. We know the education system has a role. We know the medical profession has a role. What is the role of the pharmaceutical company that is making gazillions of dollars? What is their role in educating uh, our communities and the public in general? Oh, it's massive. It's, it's reparations. It's, I mean, ours is a system of healthcare built on capitalism, racialized capitalism at that. And anytime you're putting money as an intervener between health and not having health, you're in, you're in dangerous territory. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people, you know, pharmaceutical companies have done so much. They created the vaccine. We have to give thanks and we have to recognize where their funding is coming from our own pockets. So it's not all charity. Uh, it's not all charity. Okay. And I, I think at some point, my hope is that the social entrepreneurship movement hits the pharmaceutical company. I don't know the lobbies and all this blocking that from occurring. This should be the biggest social enterprise. And yet it's still filled with capitalism. So do they have, I, they have a lot to, they have nearly a limitless about to give back to our community. 
um, to to the American community in general. Um, but yeah, there's no limit. The, the whole system, it, it's the, the medical industrial complex. It's the whole system. So I don't even separate out pharmaceuticals from hospitals that are making profits on human suffering. I mean, it's, they're all, you know, they're all lobbying our government, uh, you know, without getting too, too in the weeds. <laughs> I will just say that, you know, it, when it, what it boils down to is that healthcare, I hope we can move to a place where healthcare, whether that's pharmaceutical, insurance, can we get to a place where we can all agree that we should not be profiting on human suffering. If we are profiting on human suffering, those ends do not, that doesn't match. We need to realign our incentive that you only make money when people are getting healthier. And that's not what we have. And that goes to the feds, that goes to pharmaceuticals, that goes to everybody. It's, it, we gotta change, it's, it's enough. So we at Waymaker here, we believe that every successful person had one or more waymakers in their life. Tell us about some of the waymakers that intentionally intervene in your journey. Oh, <laughs> I know it's, we're gonna we're no gonna way. get through this, I and we're not gonna cry. We're gonna get through this. We saw this question, and we're like, we're gonna get through this without crying. But uh, so <laughs> I will just say, as I just say my piece uh, and get out because I'm emotional. It takes a village, and I think this. I got. I got emotional even just. We, you know, just hearing that because you know. I think for us and for so many Black folks, it takes a whole village, and it's so beautiful. So our parents, obviously, um, but also our extended family, our great, you know, our aunts, our uncles, our great grandma, our great grandma, um, uh, wanted to be. You know, she used to make little healing salves and things for the community, and she was a healer, and probably would have been a doctor in a different time. Um, but all these women, you stand on these shoulders of just greatness. And it's just, you know, if you're out of line, hey, you're going to hear it from a family member. And all those people, sort, even though they're not physicians and they're not in medical space, they kind of just nudged us and, uh, you know, and reminded us of who we are as we go through this system that, try, that so often dehumanizes us and tries to tell you who you are, make you smaller. So to have those little, those, have those cheerleaders, those guideposts, it's just been everything. So our, our, Family, extended family, number one. Um, and then there's also just the in the professional world. Uh, I am just so encouraged. I think this is such an exciting time to be a Black woman, but what? Um, so, you know, I'm st standing on the shoulders and walking alongside giants. Uh, Dr. Aletha Maybank, uh, she is the first just high-ranking officer of the AMA, the American Medical Association, who's a Black woman. She's been holding it down. Um, and then over even in, and I don't know her, I don't know this person, but over in California, uh, a black woman um, who is at the a health department who really led a vaccine rollout that was equitable, equitable for black and brown communities. Those are, and then of course, now it's people I've never met, but obviously I just have to give a shout out to my, my obsession, Angela Davis, who is just my guiding light, my hero, my every, she is just like literally my, you know, everybody has their shiro. I she oh she's God, you got, so I, I, you got me on Angela Davis but I just so often it's like I think for us you're just you're you're so encouraged and you just feel instant solidarity with with folks and just those people have just ah, just really lift me up just reading their work or just hearing about them so I gotta say that for me and I'll keep it brief because we could go forever but I'll just say um I have a mentor who this Dr. Neva Lubin Johnson she's an internal medicine doctor black woman past president of the National Medical Association, which is essentially where the organization Black people started when they wouldn't let us into the American Medical Association. Um, 
This woman has been taking me to brunch for over a decade. I was a first year medical student, didn't know anything or anyone. She picked my name out of a bowl at a mentorship event and proceeded to find me, stalk me, and make in a good way, in a loving way. Like, are you still alive? And to this day, to this moment, went out to brunch last month, and now I'm an attending. So, but you know, I can't emphasize enough the internal network to medicine. We talked about the hard parts, but we're here because there are giants who, who at every turn said, how can I be the hand that was extended to me? It's brilliant. And then also I have to give a shout out to Dr. Alta J. Stewart, who is the first black president of the American Psychiatric Association in my lifetime. This just happened. I think 2019 was when she started. And 1% of psychiatrists are black. So these are people who it just blows my mind. It blows my mind the path that has been blazed for us. And we try, I think you just have this sense, and this is why we did mentorship. You have the sense that I can make meaning of this by making the pathway that much easier for the next person. And that ethic is not just ours. It, we are, we inherited that ethic. And it's, it is a, it is a honor. It is a privilege. Well, as we come to an end, Dr. James, Dr. Jackson, how can our audience follow you, get a hold of you, uh, questions from you? You've got these different organizations. Uh, tell us how they can find you. Absolutely. So if you want to learn more and, you know, stay up to date on everything we're doing, it's www.whatismedicine.com. Um, that's our home base. You can also follow us on social. Uh, I am at Dr. Brittany J, Brittany with an I, uh, and my sister at Dr. Brandy J. We are on uh, Twitter and Instagram. Um, yeah, and we would just love, you know, interact. <laughs> My, my new handle is at Dr. Calm Creator. Thank you. Sorry. Dr. Calm Creator, D-R-C-A-L-M-C-R-E-A-T-E-R. Dr. Calm Creator. So yeah, Dr. Brady J. Y'all, I'm doing social media. So that one, I don't even know where it is. I can't even log in. Forgive me. So yeah. But we're, All right. So Dr. Calm www.whatismedicine.com. Um, I am do at Dr. Brittany uh, J on Twitter and Instagram. And my sister is at Dr. Calm Creator on Instagram and Twitter as well. And I just want to encourage you all to reach out. Don't be strangers. Hopefully, you know, you see doctors get a bad rap, but really we're, you, we're, we're you know, we, we like we're to just talk to our the folks. That like, come on, bring it in, bring it in. Like bring in your questions. What do you want to know? We're happy to answer for you. We just want to be a re resource for you. And we're just, honestly, you make our dream come true because I really feel like, you know, for us, it's walking in our purpose finally to just be able to, to support the Black community, grow with y'all, laugh with y'all. So we're here for you. So reach out anytime. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been an amazing conversation. And uh, we thank you for being a way maker. Uh, based on this conversation and what we've learned today, you guys are making a way every single day for our community. So thank you so much. And it's been our privilege to have this opportunity to talk to you. Have a great day. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation between Lewis Carr, Dr. Brittany James, and Dr. Brandy Jackson. What did you enjoy about this episode? Let us know on our social media at Waymaker Culture. 
you can connect with the Institute of Anti-Racism and Medicine on Twitter through their handle at AntiRacistNow. Don't forget to claim your first six months of the Waymaker Journal free at WaymakerJournal.com. And be sure to enter the Waymaker giveaway by going to WaymakerContest.com. Subscribe to the Waymaker Fireside Chat podcast to get notifications each time we release an episode.